0: With you, with your nice, warm American voice, you sound friendly all the time. But me, <laughs> a cold, monotone English, stiff upper lip. If you don't have hi, hello, how are you? Somewhere on the tape, yeah. What did
1: you have for, Yeah. What did you have? What did you have for breakfast? Type genre, it, exactly.
0: Right? Hello, and welcome to Insight Cambridge, a podcast that brings you inside Cambridge with news, views, and insight from world experts. This episode, I was delighted to speak to Gary Gerstel, who is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History here at Cambridge. He's written a great deal about race, immigration, and the labor movement and what they mean for America's history and its contemporary politics. I caught up with him to ask about President Trump and what he makes of the remarkable past few years that we've all lived through. Uh, what's your sense of, obviously you're in the United States right now, Are Republicans sticking with Trump, do you think? Or are they dumping him?
1: Uh, uh, The uh, part of uh, some good news from the United States is that uh, Republicans within the states, especially those involved with electoral machinery, are doing what they're supposed to do according to law, the Constitution. They are faithfully executing their responsibilities to count the votes as they're meant to be counted, and they are standing up to Trump. And that, that, that's, that's been a very good story because Trump has put the electoral system in America under very severe stress, and um, quite a number of us didn't know whether it would survive that stress test, uh, and it is. Uh, The less good part of the story is the National Republican Party, uh, the party that that controls the Senate, uh, and that is a very powerful institution. And they are saying in private to Biden, you're the president, Trump will leave office. But it's upsetting to see their reluctance to shut Trump down and to and to criticize him for the damage he's doing to the legitimacy of Biden's election, and that may have long-term consequences. Uh, I'm not quite sure why they're doing this, although I think this Republican Party lost its sense of integrity quite a long time ago. I think people like McConnell, they've never liked Trump, but they felt they could use him and they still think they're using him to achieve their agenda, and that when they, when the time comes to get rid of him, they will. Uh, but I think they are underestimating Trump and the damage that he can do and the damage that he has already done. And so that part of the story is much more troubling. So I, I would distinguish between the The National Republican Party in Washington, which is not distinguished itself, and many Republican officials who resisted quite extraordinary pressure at the state and local level to to do their duty and execute the election as it was meant to be executed, uh, fairly and counting every vote appropriately cast.
0: Why do you think there is that divide between state and local level Republicans and the Washington Republican Party in the Senate?
1: I think the, uh, the national Republican party, uh, uh, the one that's controls the Senate and until two years ago controlled the house has become a, uh, a radical institution. I think it is losing confidence in its ability to be a majority party and, and to win elections with electoral majorities. And increasingly it is, uh, it is using various devices constitutionally permitted to keep itself in power as a minority power as a minority party but keeping it, itself in power as a minority party raises serious questions about the democratic character of the american system and uh, i think the republicans doubt their ability to to win in a democracy, if we define a democracy in terms of gaining a majority of the votes cast, and increasingly they have opted to keep themselves in power, uh, even if it means making compromises using electoral and political devices allowed by the Constitution, but not majoritarian to perpetuate that power. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think We need to see this party for the path it's chosen for itself, which is to try and lock in its power as a minority party in American politics. I don't think Republicans at the state and local level operate in that way. I think uh, they are more consumed with local politics, state politics, where odd entities like the Electoral College don't apply where Supreme Court justice nominations and how to handle them are not at issue. Uh, so I think they are uh, the party at the local and state level. They are they are still struggling in a in a de- what they perceive to be a democratic system, and they are trying to keep it going and try to keep it intact. Um, but they uh, both parts of the Republican party on the state and local level on the one hand and at the national level on the other, they have to reckon with Trump's enormous popularity. And he did get more than 70 million votes. There's no question that he lost and he lost by a significant margin. But he drew an enormous number of votes. Uh, Their perception is that he is an enormously popular figure. With the Republican rank and file, that a very substantial part of the Republican Party now belongs to him, and Republicans everywhere live in fear that if they uh, if they cross Trump, he will sponsor and encourage a rival to run against them in political primaries and perhaps oust them from office. Uh, we can talk about why he's so extraordinarily popular among so many people. Uh, But the Republican Party lives in fear of him. And I think we have to reckon with the fear factor if we're to understand the behavior of the Republican Party across the board.
0: Mm -hmm. And you were mentioning that the National Republican Party can kind of see the demographic writing on the wall. And for that reason, is kind of uh, maybe trying every trick in the book to keep power for as long as they can, essentially. Uh, But what you would hope for and probably expect in a democratic system is when something like that happens, you try and reach out, broaden your message. Do you think the National Republican Party, they're trying that, but it's not working or they don't want to try it? What's going on there? Uh,
1: That's a a very good question. When George W. Bush was president in the, the first eight years of the 21st century. His dream, along with his key advisor, Karl Rove, was to make the Republican Party the new majority party in American politics for the long term. Uh, They thought they could put together their regional power in the South uh, and in the Southwest. They, they thought they could bring in a lot of Latino votes. They thought they could bring in a lot of small town and rural votes in America. Bush had a vision of, of the party becoming the majority party over the long term, and they had studied demographics very carefully, and they thought this could be done. And it mattered that Bush came out of the state of Texas, which has a very large and in some respects a very old, Latino population by old. I don't mean in terms of years. I mean, in terms of how long aspects of that Latino population have been in Texas, some 50 years, some 100 years, some 150 years. Bush has had 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 enormous success drawing Latino votes to him in Texas. And he also demonstrated he could do that in a national election. So they accepted the challenge that you have just mentioned of renewing the Republican Party for the 21st century, and a crucial element of that has to be an ability to attract the votes of substantial numbers of some non-white Americans, because the demographic reality is this, by 2050, no matter what immigration policies the United States pursues from here until 2050, the United States will be a majority-minority nation. And by that, I mean a a majority will be descended from populations that are characterized as minority, which in America means non-white. And that means Black, Asian American, Indigenous American, Latino American. And once you confront that demographic reality, if you're a member of a political party, you have to think, well, how am I going to make a dent in that non-white majority? given that the Democratic Party has been the party of minorities really for the last 50 to 80 years, how are we going to gain an edge there? How are we going to make inroads? Bush had a plan. Uh, He wasn't drawing many black votes, but in 2004, when he ran for reelection, I believe he gained more than 40% of the Latino vote. And he demonstrated there that that was enough to give him a majority which of which by the way he did not have in 2000 even though he was declared the winner he won with a with less votes than his rival al gore since that time the republican party seems to have opted for a different strategy which is to which is not to figure out a way to appeal to a significant portion of this looming non-white majority and instead to rely on turning out the white population for elections in ways they have not been turned out for a hundred years, and also to use the devices made available by the Constitution that allows uh, a minority party to effectively maintain its power. Uh, One of those... Devices in the in the Constitution is the Electoral College, which is which weights the votes of small town and rural Americans more heavily than urban Americans. And another device is the Senate. It's estimated that thirty percent of the American people elect seventy percent of the U.S. senators. A profoundly anti-democratic institution. And the Senate, of course, controls nominations to the Supreme Court. So if the Republicans can control the Senate with a minority of votes, they are also in a position to control appointments to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is a non-democratic institution meant to ignore Democratic majorities and rule according to the truth of the Constitution. Of course, the Supreme Court has never been non-political or or nonpartisan partisan considerations have always been part of its deliberations, and the Republican Party sees the Supreme Court as an as an ally. So the Supreme Court uh, is now positioned because of the three appointments uh, Trump has made is now positioned to ensure a the hegemony of of conservative uh, ambitions on certain key areas of policy having to do with the economy, having to do with women's reproductive rights, having to do with abortion, having to do with religion. Um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, his greatest ambition as majority leader has been to appoint as many judges as at every level, beginning with the Supreme Court, but going down into all the federal judgeships across the country and this is a mechanism for ensuring minority rule it it uh, he doesn't have to pass legislation if he can get the supreme court to throw out all the legislation that the house of representatives might put forward that might sneak through the senate and they can declare it unconstitutional so we see mcconnell leading a republican party that is doubling down on its ability to control american politics while being the minority politics the minority party and giving up on uh, the uh, opportunity to, and the imperatives imperative of becoming a majority party. So this has been a, a very um, sobering development in American politics. And if it continues over the next five or 10 or 15 years, America may have to stop calling itself a democracy. It may have to call itself a republic. A republic being a polity in which the welfare of the people is paramount, but whether that welfare is ensured through majority vote or through minorities operating on behalf of the best interests of the people, well, republics are, are happy to have it either way.
0: And I noticed there you called the uh, Senate and, you, and the Supreme Court undemocratic, profoundly undemocratic institutions. I presume that's not a compliment or not even neutral, but you kind of regret that.
1: I do regret it. I don't think uh, 30% of the American people should be electing 70% of the senators. Uh, And I don't, there's a role for a Supreme Court. Uh, The United States has the oldest written constitution operative in the world. There are benefits to that. There are are burdens to that. It's important that there be a court that uphold the constitution and, and interpret it properly. so, uh, But it's the power of, of the Supreme Court has to be within bounds, and, uh, and it's meant to be a check on overly aggressive legislatures. It's not meant to replace legislatures in terms of executing the will of the people. Uh, the first words of the U.S. Constitution are, we the people meant to indicate the country's commitment to popular sovereignty. And I think the United States is living through a moment where the ability of popu- of, of the ability of the people to be sovereign, uh, is now in doubt.
0: Hmm. But you think that's not so much down to the U S constitution itself. So not down to design. By the founding fathers, but more just because of developments subsequently. Or do you think the U.S. Constitution itself is a, a barrier to effective democratic government in the 21st century?
1: Well, the U.S. the having the oldest written constitution in the world is is both both a virtue and a burden. Uh, it's a virtue because the United States has been governed by essentially the same set of laws uh, for uh, more than 200 years now, it's a burden because an 18th century constitution could not anticipate every challenge of governing in the 21st century. And the, the constitution could be approved if it could be amended which is almost impossible to do, both because the procedure for amending the Constitution is meant to be very arduous and because in a polarized country, a country as polarized as the United States is right now, it's difficult to imagine how both sides of the polarity could come to an agreement on how the U.S. Constitution should be amended and some kind of agreement would be necessary to put any amendments into effect we can get onto the Constitution a little bit later in our, our conversation if if you wish to. Uh, the Constitution built in, the, the framers of the Constitution built into it certain counter-majoritarian instruments. And what I mean by that is that the framers of the Constitution, the so-called Founding Fathers of America, were nervous about the people being sovereign and they thought the people would at times be too passionate and too unruly and in the grip of emotions that could be unstable and lead them to erroneous policies. So the framers of the Constitution, while enshrining the principle of popular sovereignty, uh, wanted to check that sovereignty in situations where it took a wrong turn or became excessive. So the Senate was meant to be a, a body somewhat insulated from the passions of the moment. The terms of senators are six years. The terms of members of the House of Representatives are two years. Six years allows people to write out passions, or so so mm-hmm. the thinking went. And because there were two senators from each state, uh, it was thought that they would have a larger view of things. They would Be less attached to the passions of particular locales and particular struggles. They would be wiser. They would be republican rulers in a Roman mold. uh, Wealthier people, men of leisure, ability to to take the long view, to keep the people's passions in check. And the Supreme Court involved as another counter-majoritarian tendency because the obligation of the Supreme Court was to ensure that the the Constitution would be obeyed and properly interpreted. And if legislators in the Senate and Congress went against the Constitution, it's the role of the Supreme Court to declare that legislation unconstitutional. So these, this is legislation being passed by majorities and the Supreme Court arrogates to itself the responsibility of saying, well, uh, you can't do this because it violates the fundamental law of the country and and majorities in particular moments in time can't do it unless they actually amend the Constitution. So there are counter-majoritarian tendencies built in to the American Constitution meant to guard against the zealotry of popular majorities. But the problem of elite rule has gotten worse in the last uh, 30 or 40 years and it has to do with uh, how the Democratic Party reconstitute itself in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Revolution in the 1960s. Uh, until that time the Democratic Party had two strong electoral bases. It was strong in northern and western cities, it was urban, it was cosmopolitan, it was welcoming of immigrants and it was also the party of white Southerners, white supremacy, uh very strong in the south, very strong in small towns and rural areas, as long as the Democratic Party had this base in the south it did it had a base among in those states that tended to be more rural full of small towns, full of farmers, uh, and and it had a strength in the Electoral College because it had a base in those areas favored by the Electoral College. Well, once the Democratic Party committed itself to civil rights, and it commits itself to civil rights in the 1960s, and once it, commits itself to uprooting white supremacy in the South, it's going to lose the South. And the story of the Democratic Party from the 1960s through the 1990s is a story of losing the American South. And losing the American South was, it was something that needed to happen for the Democratic Party to commit itself fully to Full equality irrespective of 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 race it was something it was an important development in American politics and a very positive development, but it also meant that it gave the Democratic Party a base almost exclusively in big urban areas that fare very poorly in the calculations of the electoral college. The Democratic Party has never been able to replace that rural agrarian small town base that earlier in American history gave the party exceptional Electoral College strength. It has become concentrated in big urban areas, uh, which which are discriminated against in the Electoral College. And that means that the Democratic Party has to struggle much harder than it used to, to succeed in the Electoral College. And this has created an opportunity for the Republican Party to exercise its will as a minority party much more effectively than it could 50 or 100 years ago. So the problem of minority government in America has gotten a lot worse over the last 50 years, or I should say those like Mitch McConnell who seek to rule through minority government. They have seen their opportunities enhanced considerably over the last 50 years. And so there are opportunities for ruling in that way now that were much harder to glimpse 50, 80, 100 years ago. It's a complicated story, and you may want to ask me more questions about it. But it's it's an indispensable story to understand why the problem of minority government has become much more acute in America than it used to be. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: It is a very interesting story, and uh, starting from the beginning, I suppose, you mentioned the framers uh, were obviously keen to put in checks on overzealous majorities. Did it ever occur to them there could be overzealous minorities, very well-organized ones in political parties, who might uh, weaponize these checks and balances for their own ends? Did they ever think about that problem? Uh,
1: They were alert to the problem of what they would have called factions, uh, which is another name for overzealous uh, minorities. Uh, But I think they had great confidence in uh, the role of elite white men, well-educated, knowledgeable about the history of Republican rule, and here I mean small R Republican rule, not big R Republican rule. They had great confidence in the ability of, of, of wise men, wise elites to step in and strategic at strategic moments and correct prob- the problems both of minority and majority zealotry. That the elites would be entirely bounced from Washington, D.C., or I should say traditional elites, which has been part of Trump's goal. The framers had trouble imagining that that would happen, uh, and so uh, they it's not something they gave a lot of thought to, and so they while they worried about factions and they they knew there were rogue elements in their own ranks, they had great confidence uh in their ability to give direction to the country at the appropriate moment when it would be necessary. Uh, so they, they for that reason, they worried less about rogue elements within the elite because they thought that their ties to each other, the kind of education they had, the kind of shared experience they had, the shared values they had as elite members of American society, this would suffice for them to provide the necessary guidance at the crucial moment. Now, it should also be said that parties were much less developed at that time than they subsequently became, that parties were considered themselves too partisan and uh, uh, they, they were labeled with the negative word factions. Uh, so th- there was a notion that uh, wise elite men would step in when needed, if the republic had gone off course, to correct its path.
0: So um, to apply that to a concrete example, then obviously we had the uh, President Trump, who I think uh, most impartial observers would say pretty clear, he pressured the Ukrainian government into digging up dirt on the political opponent. For that, he was impeached, and every single senator of his party, Bar Mitt Romney, supported him. think that's the kind of situation the framers wouldn't really have expected to arise. They would have expected more independence of thought from senators.
1: I think they would have been stunned uh, by the Republican Party's behavior in that crisis. And they would have expected, uh, especially in the Senate, because the Senate is meant to be insulated from these powerful partisan Passions. They would have expected the republic, the elders of the Republican Party, to rise above party and to put the nation first, just as they would have expected national figures in the Republican Party, when Trump began uh, condemning the election as fraudulent, to stand up above and apart from party and to say the national interest here requires us to protect the nation against the party that we are members of and that we love but that in the scheme of things does not count uh, for as much as the nation and the republic for which it stands the Trump has been putting American democracy on trial. He's been putting the US Constitution on trial. Uh, it's a very serious trial. He uh, he has stopped at nothing to find a road to victory. He has not tried a military coup, and I don't think he will. Uh, but the uh, the lawsuits he has been submitting to various states to try and overturn the election results in those various states. The judges, many of whom are appointed by were appointed by Trump himself, are aghast at the crudeness of the arguments being made and their lack of cogency. They're throwing them out um, with little deliberation. And these are frequently Republican judges So some of that, what the founders wanted from national politicians and national elite, ironically, there are people at the local and state levels who are standing up for these values, but it inverts uh, the actions that the founding fathers had anticipated would be necessary in a situation like this, which is that the Those attached to local areas or states would be too passionate, would be in the grip of their emotions, and would not be able to act in the interest of the republic and the interest of the country over the interest of party. But this is precisely where American democracy in in its vulnerable season had been saved, whereas the national elite, which is the elite in which the framers invested all their hopes, has been shockingly... Uh, complicit in Trump's efforts to undermine American democracy.
0: Strength on the local level, a kind of civic strength and political weakness yes. in the capital.
1: Or elite weakness. Elite weakness. Uh, it, 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 within the elite that was expected by the framers t- to s- step in in moments of crisis and and bail out a, bail out a republic if it needed bailing out. Uh,
0: do you see any prospect of the elite getting a
1: backbone i don't know i i I uh, I uh i think i think there is a democratic elite that has a backbone and that can distinguish between a party and country i think in the national republican party they cannot imagine that there may be a moment when the interest of the Republic of the country will stand apart from the interest of the party. I see only loyalty to party at the national level in in Republican ranks, except for a few isolated figures like Mitt Romney, who has, he's he's become an honorable man, but he has very little influence uh, and, If you ask me, is the Republican Party going to regain its backbone and integrity in the near future? If you ask me to place a bet on this, (laughs) my bet is no. Of course, you know, I'm a historian, so I can't with complete confidence predict the future. It's important to recognize that uh, uh, this, this intense partisanship at the national level did not begin with Trump. Trump is as much a product uh, as a as a leader of this tendency uh the It's important to to recognize that the Republican party under Mitch McConnell, once it gained control of the Senate in two thousand ten did everything it could to obstruct Obama and the Democratic party in terms of its legislation uh took a certain delight in preventing Obama from getting anything passed in Congress. Uh, They wanted to bury him. And even on matters that uh, urgently required some kind of bipartisan action such as a comprehensive immigration reform bill. And there were moments where it looked like compromise was possible. McConnell and the leaders of the Senate uh, set themselves against it and they their priority became to render Obama a failed president. That became their number one goal and they undertook to break with precedent in the Senate uh, as ha- happened in uh, 2016 when a Supreme Court vacancy emerged and the Senate Unbelievably, refused to even hold hearings on Obama's nominee. This was a this was a slash and burn uh, partisan attack uh, and an attempt to render Obama a failed president for no good reason other than to render him a failed president and to surround him with disgrace. This was their ambition, and Obama, in turn, because he realized. After 2010, he wasn't going to get any legislation uh, through Congress. He resorted more and more to executive orders to get his work done. And executive orders were meant to be a minor administrative device to tie a president over until a legislature could get back to work. It was not meant to be a rule of governing. It was not meant to be a substitute for legislation. Obama dramatically increased the utility of executive orders as a form of, of, of legislation, only it's not being passed by a legislative body. These are simply edicts passed by the president. This was the situation that created um, a yearning for someone like Trump because Congress was seen as paralyzed and the president was seen as uh, acting out of bounds. And this lent credence to the notion that Washington was had become a swamp uh, the, and, and hence uh, looking toward a strong man who was going to sweep into town and, and clean things up. Um, he didn't exactly clean things up, but what I'm suggesting is that the crisis of American politics at the level of the national state began before Trump became president and they will continue after he ceases being president, that the problems that the United States confronts in terms of a well-functioning central government are deep and perhaps pretty close to intractable. So uh, the United States dodged a bullet in terms of rejecting Trump in terms of his bid for a second term, but the crisis of national governance in America. I'm sorry to report this far from over.
0: Do you think there are people in, I would expect mostly the Republican party, but maybe both parties who would say, well, what you call a crisis of governance, I call heaven in terms of, I don't like government. I especially don't like the federal government. It's fine by me if it's split and it can't get anything done, then it can leave me alone and leave us in liberty.
1: Uh, Yes, yes there uh there are there it this is a very strong point of view in the Republican party and you bring up what has been one of the fundamental commitments of the Republican party since Reagan became president in the 1980s uh and it's best put by a key political operative for many years you don't hear so much more much about him anymore but a major player in Washington politics in the 1990s and first decade of the 21st century, a man by the name of Grover Norquist, and I'm bringing him up not so that your listeners will remember his name uh, because it's hard to remember, but so they will remember his favorite line that he used to use for his weekly breakfasts where he invited legislators from the Republican Party to come and sign a pledge that they would never in their lives... um, Agree to legislation that would increase taxes, never in their lives. And his favorite line was, we are going to shrink the size of the federal government to the point at which we can drown it in a bathtub. And that is a becomes a central motivation of the Republican Party. We want to shrink the federal government to the point where we can drown it in a bathtub The Republicans felt that the expansion of the federal government in the 1960s and after was illegitimate, ran contrary to the Constitution, and that their obligation was to tear this edifice down. The problem is that many, many Americans, including many people who vote for Republicans, like a lot of things that the central government does, and thus do not want the federal government shrunk to the point where it can be drowned in a bathtub, because that means Social Security goes. That means aid in terms of federal emergency goes. Uh, That means all kinds of other benefits and things that the federal government does that people like go away. The Republicans might have read this orientation on the part of many American voters as indicating a need for compromise, that they can't shrink the government to the point where it's it can be drowned in a bathtub, that many things the federal government does are things that Americans in both parties value, that it's their obligation, therefore, to have a smaller but well-functioning government that delivers on what Americans want. But the Republican Party has not taken that stance. It has not read the resistance to their desire to kill the central government as expressing a desire for compromise. Uh, Instead, it's made them harder when Supreme Court justices they've appointed in the past refused to declare legislation supporting governments illegal. They have become more strident in terms of demanding justices further to the right be appointed to the court. And now they may have that majority. They have taken on the step on multiple occasions of actually shutting down the government. Uh, They have become more extreme. They have become more radical and their motto may now be, as you were suggesting, uh, destruction of the central state by any means necessary. But to take that point of view is to play with fire. And what I have found missing in the deliberations of the Republican Party uh, is this understanding that a national legislature has to solve problems that Americans put in their lap. And that a a refusal to be oriented towards solving problems Inducing paralysis, rendering the Congress an ineffectual institution, is going to lead to a decline in the respect for Congress, uh, and it's going to lead to a yearning for somebody and something who's going to ride into town and solve the problems that Congress refuses to deal with. So I would say the Republican Party radicalism on this is part of what produced. Trump. And if Congress continues to be ineffectual, and McConnell may now decide to frustrate every one of Biden's initiatives as he tried to frustrate every one of Obama's initiatives, and if we're in another, in for, if the U.S. is in for another four years of ineffectual congressional action, of divided government, of paralysis, then the United States is going to have to be ready for another strongman riding into town. I don't think it'll be Trump, but you can bet there are plenty of people watching Trump and his success, modeling their own ascent and bid for political influence and power on his journey.
0: So, um, of course, you're not Mitch McConnell's spokesman, but could you imagine him or somebody like him who thinks like him making a principled argument saying, I don't want any strong men. All I want, I just want Washington to keep its nose out of um, people's business. It should deal with wars and foreign policy and not much else. And if people want the rest of it, then they should go to the state capital, not to Washington.
1: One can make a principled case of of that sort. But uh, I think there... Um, are certain issues on which national legislation is required. Um, a sane immigration policy, however one wants to configure it, needs Washington input. A, cli- mm. a climate policy needs Washington input. And infrastructure policy, and America's in desperate need of infrastructure, needs Washington input. Input. Uh, there are serious problems confronting the United States, as there are every other industrial country, every country in the world. And I, we might add that this, is, the problems of American governance, are not limited to America. Right, the Britain's having trouble, France is having trouble, Germany may be heading for trouble. I think democratic governance is vulnerable everywhere right now because the magnitude of the problems facing these polities is is so immense. Uh, I would say America has suffered because there's, with its pandemic response, because there's been no coordination from the the center and it's been left up to the, the states. Yeah. Uh, I think for me to respect McConnell's taking a stand on principle, he would have to show me, these are the, he would have to show me not simply Everything will be done by the states except foreign policy and defense. He will have to show me a list. We would have to have a discussion of the urgent problems facing America that I think, for which I think there can be no solution by individual states. There can only be a national solution. He, he, he's not going to sit down with me because I don't matter to him. But if I was to accept his stand on principle, he would have to answer questions to me or people like me about the issues that states can't solve and not just bury his head in the sand, which is what I feel as though he's doing at, at this time. And I should say, mm-hmm. you know, you're detecting in me that uh I'm a Democrat, right? And liberal, maybe left a liberal. That's that's part of the direction of your questions to me. And, and I'm unusual in terms of where I sit on the political spectrum in thinking that some of Republican complaints about the e- expansion of federal government power in the 1960s and afterwards was done under questionable constitutional circumstances. So I am, I accept more of the Republican argument than many people who stand where I stand on the political spectrum. But to my way of thinking, that does not excuse the Republicans' obliviousness to the urgent national problems that confront America that require national solutions, which mean Mm -hmm. congressional solutions. And
0: um, when I was reading your American Crucible, Race and Nation in the 20th Century, which is highly readable, by the way, I recommend it to anyone. Thank you. Um, You wrote in concluding the book, you didn't share the faith that a new American civic nation, as opposed to a more kind of racialized one, strong, but tolerant was within reach. Did you feel a bit differently about that when Obama was elected in two thousand and eight?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I think uh, I, I think Obama uh, reawakened uh, in millions of Americans a belief in civic nationalism that America was a place for anyone, irrespective of their race, religion nationality, ethnicity, sexuality, who was willing to respect the founding documents of America, subscribe to them, work hard, obey the law, and make a place for themselves in American society, that America was was an open place in this way, founded on deep principles of equality. And for um, an African American to to be the prime articulator of a dream of a civic nation is extraordinarily important uh, and meaningful. And uh, uh, so Obama uh, reawakened a very powerful dream that America could fulfill its civic nationalist destiny. But of course, what's the other half of the story? Uh, Millions, tens of millions of Americans uh, believing at some level that uh, a black man should not occupy the White House, that this was a house to be occupied by, uh, by white men. And one of the early articulators of this point of view was of course Donald Trump who I think in 2010, 2011, 2012, embraced birtherism, uh, which was the argument that Obama was an illegitimate president because he was born abroad in Kenya, a completely preposterous story, debunked millions of times, but still something that a majority of Republicans believed uh, for much of the Obama presidency. And Trump did everything he can to Stir, stir this up. What was this birtherist argument but the claim uh, that because Obama was black he really shouldn't be president of the United States? So his uh, recreation, Obama's recreation of a dream of a strong civic nation fanned the embers of racial nationalism and embolden those who said America at the end of the day is defined by race rather than by civic ideals and this sentiment propels millions of Americans into the Trump camp and i i and unfortunately in a sense vindicate the words I wrote at the end of American Crucible in 2001, I don't think I was saying that it was impossible to reawaken a dream of a civic nation, but that this, the dream of a civic nation had been so dogged by the other tradition of American nationalism, which was the notion that America should be a nation for white people defined as people from Europe and their descendants. That that America was so entangled, both by its civic and and racial traditions, that it could not embrace one without reawakening the other. And unfortunately, I think part of the story of the Obama presidency um, is that his dream of reestablishing America as a civic nation failed to convince millions of whites that this could be done under the leadership of a black man. Uh, and uh, increasingly, they were drawn to uh, a kind of white tribalism, um, a, a white nationalism, uh, determined to, to privilege the situation of whites in America and, and determined to build a politics on the basis of white grievance that many whites in America had suffered a great deal and that Trump was going to be their standard bearer. I don't think this means that a civic nation in America can never ever be realized, but I think we have to be realistic about the history of the United States. Uh, The history, the period of time in which America was a slave nation is still longer than the period of time that it's been a free nation. And it's just proven extraordinarily difficult for America to to disentangle itself from its racist past and to disentangle itself from the dream of being a a people of a nation of whites, uh, descended from the pinnacle of civilization regard, regarded as interpreted as as being Europe and the peoples of Europe. Mm. Uh, so the U.S. is is, is on a is, is on a journey. I, I think Biden is very much the legatee of Obama. He is reawakening once again the civic dream. I regard it as a noble dream. I would like America to one day escape its racial nationalist past and embrace fully the civic ideals on which the country um, was founded and and ideals in which it can take pride. Uh, But watching and observing America in my own life and studying American history has helped, has made me understand how difficult it is to disentangle racial nationalism from civic nationalism. Obama thought he could do it. He thought that he could heal America's racial wounds. He thought that as a black man with a white mother and white grandparents, he understood white America as well as black America. And he does understand white America and black America. And he could be a powerful force for reconciliation and yet uh, his presidency was was marred by the renaissance of an old American racism. And one can see in Trump's determination to erase everything that Obama did. The uh, deal with Iran, the Paris Climate Accords, uh, Obamacare, the re-regulation of Wall Street that Obama Obama pioneered. We can detect in Trump's determination to erase Obama echoes of the politics of Reconstruction, something that occurred uh, 160, 170 years ago after the Civil War when slavery was eliminated and the Constitution was amended to put blacks on the same egalitarian basis as whites and blacks in the southern states rushed into politics and became prominent in state legislatures, elected some senators and congressmen to Washington. Uh, They exercised real political power and the anger of white southerners at At this activity on the part of blacks was so intense that they became determined not only to oust them from office once white southerners regained the vote, but to portray their years of governance as so lacking in uh, intelligence, uh, significance, uh, that um, they did nothing with their opportunity. And this is a way of saying that you put blacks in positions of authority, they can't do the work. This was, in a sense, the message of the Southern white redeemers trying to take back the South from blacks who had occupied positions of political influence during Reconstruction. And in Trump's efforts to erase Obama and his accomplishments, we can see echoes of that ugly chapter in American history and that underscores once again the durability of racist sentiments and racist thinking in American society.
0: Um, That's a bleak but poignant thought to end on a potentially more positive note because you've already been so generous with your time. Thank you. Um, Can you think of anything good that's come out of the Trump administration in the past four years?
1: Uh, I think Trump has, um, I think his, his, uh, some of his, uh, foreign policy initiatives will endure. I think, um, I think he's been a critic of of elevating global free trade as um, a goal to be pursued at all times and in all places. Uh, He has made American society and I think other societies um, more willing to question the benefits versus the costs of free trade he's he's not he was in some respects his protectionism was not all that dissimilar from Democrats on the left side of the political spectrum like like Bernie Sanders uh, I think uh, he has provoked a or accelerated a, a questioning of uh, globalization as being the solution of, to all economic problems. I think his policies to China will endure. I think the uh, earlier Republican and Democratic uh, approaches to China uh, based on the principle that if we draw, meaning we, the West, draws China into international capitalist exchanges that democracy in china will follow I think that has now been exposed as a wrong headed uh, policy uh, I think there's been some interesting motion in the middle east um, uh that will uh, that that will endure uh, i think um, uh trump's Uh, asking Europe for more contributions to its own defense is a trajectory that will continue to intensify uh, over the next 20 or 30 or 40 years. Uh, I think the notion that America providing military umbrella for the world is that that um, approach to international politics, I think the days of that are numbered, I actually think there's continuity between Obama and Trump uh, in that way. So I think the, um, uh, though I deplore the manner in which Trump conducted international relations, I think some of the initiatives uh, and the rethinking that he has provoked uh, during the course of his presidency will accelerate the, um, the transition of the world in the 21st century from Pax Americana to something else. And that something else I hope will not be the kind of isolationism in America first orientation that Trump has embraced, Um, that it will be more cosmopolitan, more multilateral, um, more interested in engaging the US with the world but I think the, we are at the beginning and by we, I mean, the world is at the beginning, the early stages of a transition beyond Pax Americana. And I think Trump's presidency has probably accelerated those developments. Uh, and I think he may be seen, um, uh, once we get a longer term perspective on him as having done good work in that area. Um, uh, or contributing to a transition which had to occur sooner or later. I have difficulty um, pointing to uh, accomplishments at the domestic level that I consider positive, mm-hmm. although I think some of the policies that he put put in place and some of the practices of politics that he has elevated uh, will endure.
0: Thanks, Professor Gerstle. That was really fascinating. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. That episode of Insight Cambridge was produced and edited by me, Louis Wolfe. You heard from Gary Gerstel, the Paul Mellon Professor of American History. The theme music was Good Times by Poddington Bear. If you liked that episode, remember to subscribe so you don't miss the next one and to share it with your friends. And you can suggest topics to cover for next time on the Insight Cambridge Facebook page. Have a nice Christmas and remember to look out for the next episode around New Year's. See you then.